The Mix Room with Genelec. Today's podcast guest is Tony Perry, director of the historic Windmill Lane Recording Studios in Dublin, which has seen artists including U2, Lady Gaga, David Bowie, Kate Bush, The Rolling Stones, Ed Sheeran, The Cause, Gabrielle, Shania Twain, 50 Cent record there, among many, many, many others. And it's also been used a lot for film score recordings, such as for The Mask and Mission Impossible. I don't think there's anyone alive that doesn't know the theme tune to that last one. So let's find out all there is to know about the studio and some key projects that have taken place there. Welcome along then, Tony. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. A nice sunny day here in Ireland, which is unusual this time of the year. Oh, not down here. Uh, not down here. This end of the country, no way. Well, I'm glad you've got oh some sun up there, um, for sure. What are, you, um, what are you up to today? What kind of projects are you working on at the moment, if you're allowed to say? Well, um, there's a few things I'm working on. And believe it or not, one of the ones is the monitoring in Studio 2 in Windmill Lane. I just shoved the um, crossover frequency from 80 hertz to, one, uh, to 100 hertz <clears throat> on our system there. And it made a big difference and it's sounding fantastic. We were actually moving the SSL back into place. We used to have Spike Stent, the wonderful Spike Stent mixing engineer in Studio 2 for about 18 months. And uh, he's moving back to the UK. So we put our SSL back into Studio 2 and uh, we have just been tweaking, let's say, tweaking the sound in there. It's absolutely fantastic i have to say i can't stop smiling uh because you know it's we used to have a bit of an issue uh in studio two there was this dip around 80 hertz it was driving me nuts and um when spike went in there he he built a new cloud for it you know which is just basically acoustic treatment i suppose up above but also other acoustic treatments in fairness and um i mean he was mixing some amazing stuff while he was in there so he you know he obviously had really good good sound in the room and um but it changes doesn't it when you bring back in things like an ssl and new racks and all that kind of stuff so we were just moving the ssl into the optimum position mm -hmm. and then recalibrating using the glm system this sounds like total genelec plug but it isn't it just is <laughs> what, actually what i've been doing <laughs> and um i'd forgotten that we had put the the crossover frequency previously at 100 hertz and i said 80 hertz and i was going man that's just not sounding as full as it did before and then i went oh do you know what it might be and it was that <laughs> and it was like yay so everyone's really happy today and just like come in and have a listen you know okay so good that's what we were doing, where it's doing the last be. two days <laughs> brilliant <Yeah. laughs> um before we get into all everything about the studio basically what was your route into the industry how did you find yourself oh. at windmill lane recording studios what was okay, your journey well, about, okay about a hundred years ago <laughs> um i was I don't know how far back to go, Alice, but I, I, I was in a band when I was young, when I was in school. I was a singer. You wouldn't think it with my voice now, but I was a singer. <laughs> it didn't sound quite like this. And um, I joined a band and the, the keyboard player in the band got me a job in a music shop when I left school. And I was really lucky because that music shop had some real pro kit in it. It had Akai samplers, the first Akai samplers, that kind of stuff, that music tech. And I was given an introduction to that music tech for free just by working in that shop. And um, it was amazing. Like, you know, I'd work on projects and I remember the guys from Clonard, a, a band, an Irish band from years and years ago, but they had a, a really big hit with a theme from Harry's Game and um, working and seeing these famous loops, these sounds that the S900 had created. And working with those guys. And that I remember Mike Linda from Level 42 coming into the shop. It's that kind of place. Mm. So I got really good with music tech for free because I was trained by by really good people. You know, these people really knew what they were doing. I, I just was in the right place at the right time. Left there eventually and set up a small MIDI studio um, close by in, in, in the city, in, the, in Dublin city. And... Um, then moved to another place, Harrington Street, a, bit, a slightly bigger studio. Moved to Camden Street, uh, where there's now Camden Studios, uh, a lovely studio. I mean, we had recorded artists like Snoop Dogg, 50 Cent, Brian Adams, John Bon Jovi. You know, we were getting good clients. And um, we kind of built that one from scratch. It was an old art gallery. Mm -hmm. 
And then in 2008, um, a good colleague of mine, Alistair Macmillan, who is now monitor engineer um, for Bono, and you too in The Voice, mm-hmm. um, came in and um, and said, look, you know, the, the owner of Windmill Lane, Windmill Lane had, had passed hands uh, from um, Brian Masterson uh, and, and co, Andrew Boland and Brian Masterson, They'd sold it to, I mean, it's, it's public knowledge now that it, it was in the newspapers, but um, it was Van Morrison and Van had it for a while. And Alistair was working with Van and Alistair said, Van's looking to sell this. Would you be interested? And we had a college as well as a, gr- a growing couple of recording studios. And it was just perfect timing because we were, we were looking for a bigger boat. Then when I heard the famous Windmill Lane was up for sale, I went, hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd worked in Windmill Lane already. I'd done a couple of sessions in Windmill Lane. And um, I was just, Windmill had this aura about it. it. You know, anyone in our industry knew about it. You know, it was obviously yeah. synonymous with U2 and all of that. Um, so many great artists had been in there. I remember walking in there. I was recording an orchestra. And believe it or not, it was for Ballycus Angel, which was a BBC series. Mm-hmm based in Ireland, and they were, we were recording the music, an orchestral uh, number of cues. And I remember walking into the control room of Studio One and going, oh, my God. <laughs> wow, this place is amazing. And, it's, you know, there's a meme, a bit of a joke about, you know, everyone's an audio engineer until they sit in front of one of these. Yes, and it was yeah. the VR legend, you know, 72, 144 inputs. And it was like, oh, God, better not mess this one up. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, and so uh, yeah, I I kind of had a chat with uh, with the team, that team, um, and it took about eight months to to sign off on the deal, and um, it had been used more, it hadn't been used as much as a commercial studio for about three or four years, so it needed to be spruced up and turned into, you know, that kind of working studio that current well-loved well-maintained studio which is hard to do you know when you've got a lot of analog gear and then i had to get an ssl for studio two uh which we got in bulgaria actually funny enough i worked in that in that studio in bulgaria a few times the uh, it's the national broadcaster uh studio there bnr uh recording 110 piece orchestra long long story and then it turns out that the desk that I got for Studio Two had been in that very studio. I was wondering about the Cyrillic writing on the patch bay. You know, mm. <laughs> I was going like, "What?" Anyway, it turns out that I had a bit of a bit of a history with that place. So we did up Studio Two and Studio One um, with just, you know, rewiring, recommissioning the desks, that kind of stuff, and kind of grew it from there. Alice, I suppose, you know, mm-hmm. back to getting the bigger clients back in again. You know. Yeah, of course. So it first opened, I saw in 78. So, um, you know, this mm. idea to create this world-class production facility in Dublin. So was there no other studio of this calibre in Dublin at no. the time? No, no, there wasn't at the time. Okay. Um, Brian and Andrew, well, actually it was Brian Masterson uh, and and a few other guys. Um, James um, uh, was was another guy, James Morris. He, those two guys set up Win Lane. In a in a smaller building, just around the block from where it is now, um, on Windmill Lane. You know that the address was Windmill Lane, and um, they were great. They really were. I th- I still think that they were visionaries at the time. Um, they they thought big, and they they spent the money, and they did it well. And um, they were fortunate as well. And I think they acknowledged this themselves. They. They bumped into a young band at the time called U2 and um, U2 loved Windmill Lane and they loved U2 and, you know, a lot of people thought that U2 actually owned Windmill Lane Studios, but it wasn't the case. Mm. Um, They were just really good clients of the studios and um, James was more involved in film and film editing and really started making a success of the whole MTV generation video videos for bands so a lot of videos international videos were shot um yeah they they were fortunate they had um that young band u2 coming along and um 
and it just took off. So what happened was that James was doing the the video side and doing a lot of um, videos for MTV. Eventually what happened was that they had the recording studio and the film business uh, in the same building and they needed to, they needed to grow. So James and Brian went their separate ways and you had Windmill Lane Pictures, which was set up in Baggett Street in Dub- well, in the centre of Dublin and moved to Bag Street. And then um, Brian moved over to Rings End Road Studios to grow Windmill Lane just around the corner uh, into the current building um, and moved over late 80s, 89 out thereabouts, into this beautiful 12,500 square foot Art Deco building. Um, and that's where it's been ever since. I mean, Windmill Lane was a good studio. It was a nice sized studio, but this is, this was just a totally different ball game. This was a big studio and he joined forces with Andrew Boland and it just continued to grow. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, Windmill Lane was only on, on Windmill Lane. It was when it was on Windmill Lane, but like for only from 1979, there about 78, 79 to 1989. About 10 years of its life did it live in that building. The rest of the time, you know, since 1989, I was that 33 years it's been in this building. Mm. And it's it, because it's been in such a, a great location, a great building, it could kind of grow, you know, and it, um, you know, we can seat, you know, quite big orchestras there, for example, in the live room and, and Studio One. Now, you know, you can discuss how many players would you seat in that room. It depends on whether you've got percussion or whatever it might be, but... Like, you know, you can easily have a 60-piece orchestra in that room, you know, fit in comfortably, very comfortably, and sound great, you know. You can fit in more. They might be a bit squashed, but, mm. you know, it's, it, it was just a, a beautiful space to record in. And, I mean, I say to people when they, they come along and, and have a look-see, it's like there is, it's a cliche, but there really is a vibe and there's music in the walls, you know. Mm. It's a fantastic place. It's Quite a quirky looking it. building as well. Oh, is it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, it's it's from the 30s, an Art Deco building, and mm. it was built for trams, believe it or not. Um, big power supplies for trams back in the day. So the building reflects that. It's got these big archways that, you know, you know are designed to take a huge amount of weight, you know. And um, like the live room in Studio 2, which is where you two have done I mean, so much recording in Studio Two. Um, so many of the drum sounds that you hear on U2, U2's albums over the years have been done in that room. Like, it was never designed as a recording studio originally, of course, you know, but it's just, it's got this kind of stone, solid sound to it, you know, and with this unusual, it's kind of quite an unusual shaped ceiling. And the room has no you know, well, which is good for sound, I suppose. It has no parallel surfaces, really. It's quite an odd shape. Um, but when you hit a snare drum in that room, like, you know about it, you know it. <laughs> Ouch, you know, but it's, it just sounds great, you know. And you can tame it down. We just tame it down with big rugs as well. And, you know, it's quite a versatile, versatile sounding space. So, you know, Studio Two is a real rock and roll studio. Mm. It's done so many hits over the years, you know, it... it Back in the day, like the Spice Girls, you know, for many, many of the Spice Girls hits were done in Studio Two in Dublin. Oh, really? I didn't know that. With Biff, yeah. And, you know, Kylie Minogue, a lot of her big hits in the 90s. You know, bands like Gabrielle and Five and I'm just trying to think, you know, that that kind of scene in the 90s. Yeah. There was an English producer called Biff, uh, Biffco, and um, he was a very successful producer and he was working out of studio two and doing a lot of those a lot of those hits so studio two was a hit making factory it really was studio one as well yes i mean had big bands like rolling stone god it sounds like awful name dropping going on here oh you should drop those names drop them (laughs) absolutely but but, um you know those those like other bands like you two of course use studio one and um the stones and all that but it Studio One is just one of those studios that you can just do anything in it. If you design a room to be able to manage an orchestra and you've got enough baffles as well, movable baffles, you can record anything in it, you know, and it's got this beautiful acoustic 
it's like recording acoustic instruments in Studio One is just, it's got this really open sound. The Neve desk also adds to that kind of open sound. So Studio Two is kind of rock and roll, kind of got that, obviously it's got an SSL sound. We have an SSL 4000 series there. And that's quite a signature sound to me anyway. And I'm sure a lot of people who be listening to the podcast know what I mean by that. Yes. Um, with that bus compression, with that classic SSL sound. Whereas I always think Studio 2 has a bit more of a, a slightly more, o- uh, Studio 1, sorry, upstairs, with the Neve, has slightly more open sound. But also it's, it's a bigger space to record in. So you can use Omni mics a lot more. Like if you want to use Omni mics for overheads, you can, and it can give you that just a bit more air or something. I don't know. Um it's it's incredibly versatile and instruments record beautifully there. And, you know, over the years, there's been everyone from, like we've done a lot of big film soundtracks. Um, Emma Bernstein and, and you know, famous composers like that have have recorded orchestras there. Um, but also, you know, Metallica recorded there. And, and like I said, the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. and ACDC recorded there. So it's, it's a kind of room where, like, you know, knock yourself out, Herbie Hancock, artists like this you know like mm. any style of music you can do in studio one you know yes uh, i've seen on the website there's anyone can go and look at it there's a kind of a list almost of all the incredible projects artists film scores that have been there but this one struck me as interesting well sometimes you might not think of international stars perhaps visiting dublin but i saw that um not that they wouldn't visit dublin but record there over perhaps i would picture them in somewhere in la or maybe in one of those you know retreat style studios in thailand but i saw lady gaga's born this way is among uh, oh, yeah. one of the records mm. recorded there or some of the tracks mm. so is it true that yes. she laid down some of the tracks just a few hours before she yes. went on stage for her um dublin gig yeah, well, how did where'd you hear that <laughs> i saw i did my yeah. research i found it <laughs> well done you <laughs> thank you gold star yes. for me <laughs> yes um yeah, she did. She was on tour and um, she had work to do on uh, the Born This Way album and um, like a consummate, consummate professional. She had her own people with her. Uh, one person in particular, I forget his name. Um, and they just came in. She didn't even use the live room in Studio One. She just did it in the control room, did the vocals in the control room of Studio One because yeah, a lot, of, I suppose, of the part of that they were working on at the time were in the box. I'm sure she does uh, some out of, out of the box stuff as well. You know, mm. she's, she's a proper musician. I, anyone yeah. knows that anyone who sees her sit behind the piano and sing any style of music is just, you cannot, but just be in awe really of, of someone like that. I play keyboards poorly <laughs> <laughs> and piano. And when I see her play and I see that effortless grace and fun and, you know, just consummate professionalism. Uh, she's She is like that. And so she came in and she had vocals to do and she was going to be singing that night in the three arena, yeah. Um, and no, you know, like it's funny, I think artists at that level, they don't have any, um, they really don't have any airs or graces, you know. Mm. Like my experience, I think that rightfully they're, their team around them protects them. You know, they don't know where they're going. Like, what I mean by that is that they travel the world and they they don't know that, for example, in Ireland, we're not that impressed with celebrity, for celebrity's sake. Mm. Um, Bono always said, you know, and so many people have said it, you know, from Brad Pitt to whoever. You, know, you can walk down a street in, in Dublin and they would recognise you, but they're not going to hassle you. and you know, it, it's just one of those kind of places where they'll wave over or, or something like that, you know. Yeah. So the teams around these people aren't used to that. They might be used to a much more, not hostile, but more feral kind of like, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> so they're, they're very protective and rightly so of their, of their, of their artist. Um, but we do find that, that sometimes the team around the stars can be very, God, it has to be like this and it has to be like this and it has to be like this. Mm. And they're, they can be a bit uptight. And you find that the artists themselves aren't the least bit like that at all. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. They, 
It the just, only uh, it, bit I know that from is doing interviews with uh, certain artists. It'll be the team that might make a bit of a, not a fuss, but make sure it's a certain way. And yeah. then they're just, they couldn't be lovely or more relaxed. So yeah, I think I can exactly get the picture. Right. <laughs> That's exactly it, you know, and I, I, I don't mean to name drop, but I've been fortunate enough to, you know, I suppose, chat with and, and work with various different artists. And some of the ones I chat with, I don't work with. My team works with, like I train the team and I don't, necessarily do all the sessions anymore i will step in you know and i i still enjoy it but i also have a team there that they need to get their credits and their chops up and all that kind of stuff so sometimes i might just meet with them and not do the session itself but you know i found that you know i'm just thinking of people like brian adams or john bon jovi or people like that coming in they can be just so down to earth and just, you know, they're just like you and me. Like, they they love music. They live from music. Of course they do. They love sound. They're doing what they love doing. They have nothing to prove because they are who they are. Um, and the reason why they're at the level that they're at is because they're, they're great communicators. Um, they obviously have emotional intelligence and all those things that you need to be, f- to be a good songwriter and mm. performer. And, you know, like, and they... They're also there because they are consummate professionals. They know exactly what they're doing. And people like that are dead easy to work with and be around, you know. Um, like sometimes you, you might get a, an insecure young band who might have had a big first album. And now, you know, it's a classic difficult second album syndrome yeah. where <laughs> they, they've only got nine months to write a new album when they had their whole lives to write the first album. And they've been touring ever since. They're tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, they, that's they're kind of like a different beast. But for the, a lot of those really big artists and people like Lady Gaga just came in and said, call me Stephanie and jeans and jumper and couldn't be nicer and accommodating and, you know, absolutely in our comfort zone, working hard in a recording studio. I mean, it's it's what you'd, it's everything you'd imagine. And it's the same again, God, name drop. Um, a few months ago, we had Bruce Springsteen in, and we were doing vocals. Nice. And it was the same thing. Mm. Like just, now his team were wonderful, oh, beautiful good. people themselves. Good. Like they were really warm. You could got a sense of, of family and kindness as you do with a lot of those, those tight groups. And um, again, just couldn't be easier to work with and couldn't be more gracious i suppose is the word mm. and i'm not just saying this you know i'm not just saying this that because you know I, f- I feel obligated to say it about a client that isn't the case it's it's just my experience of many artists at that level they just they are gracious and they they're very easy to work with i suppose if things go wrong maybe yeah that you know things could get very difficult and touch wood nothing has gone wrong like a desk breaking down or something when they're under pressure but um nothing but um nothing good but good things to say about the clients that i've be, i've been lucky enough to have that's for sure well that's excellent um i'm you must have so many stories i'm curious with the you know pedigree of bands and artists that've been there and the scores what are your some of your personal favorite moments there or projects so now even you know mission impossible soundtrack how huge is that that was recorded there is that among one of your top favorite moments there or was that it was actually i wasn't i wasn't in on that one oh you're um, not that, that was brian oh. i think that was brian masson doing that one okay what's your favorite one then tony <laughs> oh i oh i don't know um it's it's more moments i suppose yeah. it's it's uh rather than often rather than the people i know that sounds a bit that might sound a bit strange i, I have to say bruce uh recently was a big one bruce yeah. springsteen just hearing that voice coming through um a beautiful microphone through a beautiful preamp and it's it's Bruce's voice, like yeah, but really you know, there, yeah. I suppose, yeah. That was, you know, we have uh, one of our engineers, uh, Greg, was was uh, sitting. I said, to, I phoned him up, and I was going to oversee the session, and I thought, you know what? And everyone was saying to me, get Greg to engineer it because Greg is the biggest Bruce fan in Ireland. He has to be. I mean, the guy is obsessed with Bruce. And I went, oh, that's a brilliant idea. So I phoned up Greg and I just said, Greg, 
would you do a session for me? I'll, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be overseeing it. But do you take control of the desk? And he goes, because it'd be a strange request for Greg, you know, for me to ask Greg to do it that way. And he was going, yeah, why? And I said, it's just, we've got a, a, an artist coming in at kind of a bit at the last minute. He said, oh yeah, who? And I said, Bruce. And he goes, you're kidding. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> like, I was going, well, do you know any other? And, um, it was so lovely. It was just so lovely. And I've got a picture of Greg and myself and Bruce at the desk. And it was as much to give Greg that wonderful opportunity because, I mean, I was always a Bruce fan myself, but not, you know, that just died in the wool, obsessed kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Greg grew up just adoring him. And um, we were prepping for the gig and he wrote on one of the channels you know, the way you do it with, you, you know, you have the camera tape there, the masking tape, and you write mm-hmm. with a um, with a Sharpie, and he just wrote down Bruce. And he looked at it and he said, I've been waiting my whole life to do that. Oh, Isn't what that a just moment. amazing? I love that. Yeah, and now it's, you see, it's moments like, and that was even before Bruce arrived. <laughs> but, you know, it is moments like that. Um, there was another that I actually recorded uh, on my phone. There's a band in Ireland called the Hot House Flowers. Mm-hmm. And they made quite a splash internationally for, I always loved working with these guys. And yeah, there have been, I suppose, more commercially successful artists over the years. Many of them, of course. But these guys are wonderful musicians and beautiful players. And they just have this freedom about... They have a freedom about their music and and an expression uh, when they're playing that you really do you can really capture lightning in a bottle with a band like that. Everything is live. And you, I mean, you have to spend ages setting everything up with all yeah, the mics. And like, we have a full Steinway grand, Steinway D grand piano in there. And Liam plays that. And, you know, it's trying to manage a drum kit. They like to play close to each other, but like, you know, you're going, Oh my God, you know, uh, how are we going to manage this? Because, you know, we've, we got a drum kit over here. The baffles are only mm-hmm. doing a certain amount. We got guitars here, you know, but they just love that organic approach. So it's challenging, but it's lovely. And I have been, I have to say, I have been nearly moved to tears just looking through the window and hearing it on maybe day two of, of starting to record an album. When everything starts to come together sonically as well, that you, you're not, stressing out over did I hear some noise from that bass you know that kind of thing when everything is set up and you've had a day or a day and a half to to kind of sort everything out even get the balances and all that kind of stuff and they they sense it themselves they can hear it in their headphones and they they're really comfortable and then they start to play and jam and I remember one time they had one song that was just a beautiful one that they'd been working on. I said, well, we played through it. They played through it and it was just so beautiful. I mean, it was just so beautiful. It just took my breath away. You know, the way sometimes when it's unexpected, I suppose, you kind of, you can sometimes step outside of yourself and almost, and look down and just go, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. Yeah, pitch me moment, yeah. Yeah, you know, like we're all, there's always a child inside of us, really, I think, within the arts and within the creative area. And I know we're technical as well, but we are, you know, very much creative, technical, whatever, I suppose, part of that process. And we're still fans at heart, you know, we're still, we still adore it. We just still absolutely adore it. And and we fall in love with it, it moves us, it there isn't a day goes by that I don't think about songs and chords and songs. And you know, like, I, I, I've promised the people around me that I will grow up finally one day, but I don't know if it'll ever happen. Don't you dare. And, <laughs> and it happens in the studio that you can indulge that to a certain degree, can't you? Mm. You know, it's just, it's lovely. It really is lovely. So it's more moments, I suppose, Alice, than anything else. Another moment was we have a college as well. And uh, there was a student who was a, a student from a jazz college. He played bass and, and he was a very competent jazz musician. And um, it was his first day of term, believe it or not. And I went down to him and I said, uh, Brian, come with me. He was in the classroom in a, in a, in a, in a lab. I said, come with me and brought him into Studio One and Herbie Hancock was there. 
<laughs> and he wasn't, he didn't know that Herbie was there. <laughs> I said, I'd like to, I'd like to introduce you to someone. Uh, Herbie, meet Brian. And Brian was just like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it is moments like that that I remember as much as anything else, you know. Mm, so many wonderful moments there to choose from. Mm. You mentioned the the college there. So this is Pulse, mm. isn't it? So tell me a bit about that and how you've diversified the business by launching Pulse College. Okay, so, you know, it actually goes back a long way because I used to demonstrate, when I was in that music shop, I used to demonstrate equipment, believe it or not. So, you know, samplers were coming along, people didn't know how to use them. Mm-hmm. Um, MIDI was a thing that was still... I mean, look, it had been around for quite a while, but a lot of musicians still didn't really get it. They didn't know how to use it properly. And um, when we set up a small studio initially, it was in a school of music, believe it or not. And um, we decided that as well as doing MIDI programming for projects, there were people who were interested in learning about some of the basic tech of what we were doing. So we, we started on, I think, on a Saturday teaching some basic courses. And I mean, this is going right back now, Alice, to early 90s. Mm. And um, then when we moved from the School of Music, we'd built up kind of a bit of a reputation for, you know, being people who could who could teach you how to do this stuff, you know, who could teach how to use a sequencer, yeah. you know, like Atari 1040 ST. And I know it does age me a lot, but, you know, back back then there were some, you know, cutting edge pieces of tech. Yeah. Um, so we moved to a basement on, on Harrington Street in Dublin. And um, to supplement what we were doing, because it's really hard to, um, to make a living when you set up a studio and do nothing else. Like it really is hard. I mean, you have to work hard. You have to get a lot of sessions in. Yeah. And again, what we do in some of the evenings let's say Tuesday and Thursday evening, we'd do classes. People would come in and we'd teach them how to do basic recording. We had a small um, Allen and Heath S2 console, an 8-track tape machine and an Atari ST1040. And, um, you know, eventually we went to a 16-track machine on one inch, this kind of thing, you know. Um, now it was, But it was brilliant. It was fun. And, you know, these were just unofficial kind of courses. They were just by reputation, people would come along and we'd do an eight-week course in the evenings, that kind of thing. And they were going really well for us. So right from the beginning, we didn't see it uh, see it as a dichotomy or or that it should pull you apart between two businesses. We kind of saw one as complementing the other, to be honest. And um, it worked really well. And then um, we moved to a place on Camden Street, that art gallery that I mentioned, just behind Camden Street, which is now the wonderful Camden Recording Studios. Um, and we we just continued on with that. And then myself and one of the guys with me at the time, Rob, approached uh, City and Guilds in, in London. And I was the first then to bring in, we were the first to bring in proper qualifications into Ireland in audio engineering. And then, and we became a city and guild center of excellence. And, you know, we, we, we started doing full-time courses in a building beside the studio. And, um, then eventually, uh, we approached UCLan and, um, University of Central Lancashire and, uh, delivered their degrees and the very first degrees in audio and music production in the country. Um, and we worked with them on, even on their curriculum at that stage. We were, we were quite seasoned educators as well as, um, audio engineers and music producers. We, we did at that stage kind of really know what we were about. And we had modified the city and guilds curriculum and worked with the team there to improve that curriculum. And we did the same with UCLan. And then after a while, I just said, you know, we're just going to write our own degrees. So, um, I developed the first kind of home-written degrees, let's say, and, and got them validated here in, in, in Ireland. And we teamed up with the wonderful Griffith College in Dublin. And they're all on the European framework, blah, 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 level eight and nine, which would be, I suppose, in the UK, should be level six. So we do everything up to master's degree in, in film scoring. So everything from level six, which is post-secondary school. So once in the UK, I'm trying to do the, the translation here, straight yeah. after... <laughs> 
you've done, you know, the, the, the A-levels and you go into college. Yeah. Your first stage, well, our, for us, that's level six. So we do level six certificate, level seven ordinary degree, level eight honours degree and level nine postgraduate diplomas and master's degrees as well. So that kind of keeps us busy as well. But I love it. You know, I, like I managed to get involved with Pro Tools, uh, digit design at the time through their education program. And I was fortunately one of the people to um, contribute to the, the AVID, the Pro Tools worldwide curriculum, myself and three other guys from Europe. And then about eight guys from the States. We all kind of got together in Pinewood Studios in the UK and over in Daly City in, in, in California um, to work on that curriculum. So it did open doors for me as well, um, the, the whole education side. For me as a, as a producer and as a practitioner, it really did. You know, I became quite expert on Pro Tools and, and all of those things by doing it, you know, and I became an Apple certified Logic Pro, all that kind of stuff, Pro Instructor. And, um, and the, the whole education world kind of opened that up to me. And now um, I'm kind of... Uh, joining a part of an advisory group for like Eventide and um, Empirical Labs and, and a few other outfits like that with a bunch of, of, of very esteemed people. I, I'm kind of going to feel like I'm blagging it a bit, but a, a bunch of esteemed people from the States mostly who are like ex-AES, uh, senior people in, in the AES and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So education does... Um, it's not that you're just teaching all the time and, and writing degrees. It, it There's a feedback loop there to you and your development. You know, uh, I never saw education as a, you know, I never saw it as a, you know, a, an impediment or anything. In fact, it, as a business, it's been wonderful for us. But also our students have gone on to work with many of the top artists, or, I mean, around the world. I mean, you two's last bunch of people were all, you know, people who've graduated from our programs, people have gone on to work with some of the very top acts in the world, you know. And of course, you know, they, they the interns, you know, once they leave the college, they've graduated, they have an internship with us for a year. And also while they're in college, they sit in on sessions. And when Bruce was recording, for example, there were interns working there and they can say that they worked with Bruce on their on their CVs, you know. <laughs> well, not everyone can Isn't say that. Isn't that amazing? I know. Yeah. Some CV. Uh, like we had... Yeah, we had a guy, Brian, um, from Carlo in, in Ireland. We're very proud of Brian. And he, when he was uh, in his final year with us doing the, his level eight honours degree, he was um, nominated for a project that he did, a client project that he did in in Windmill. Um, he had a number one hit, Christmas hit in Germany with it that year. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and um, he was nominated for International Producer of the Year and International Recording Engineer of the Year. Alongside, it was, I think it was Geta, Max Martin, and Rick Rubin. I mean, it was names like that, wow. if not those, but it's some of those names. And, and everyone was going, who the hell is Brian Shield? You know, like, <laughs> um, so we're like, we, we're really proud of our students. They are now our, many of them are now our dear colleagues who work within the industry and who travel around the world doing live shows with some of the biggest acts in the world or working in recording studios, you know, with some of the biggest acts in the world. And they come back and they, they teach with us. They contribute, you know, they, you know, they keep us relevant and up to date with everything. So it's a really wonderful kind of symbiotic arrangement between the college and the studios. Mm, that's wonderful and so nice to hear that you're so proud of the students and what they go on to achieve that's exactly what you want yeah, isn't it absolutely. Um, let's yeah, talk absolutely. a little bit about the the tech inside these amazing studios so you've got three state-of-the-art studios as you said the largest one I think you said 80-piece orchestra you can fit in there so let's hear a little bit about this all-important kit so I know you've got a lot of Genelec monitors in there haven't you so what are you using Me in too. there? Okay, so like the ones in Studio One were there when when we got, um, when we we took over Windmill. I like they were ten thirty nine A's, mm -hmm. like they're old, but man, they're good. <laughs> like oh my god, they don't even have a subwoofer. These things are so big, they're flush mounted. Yeah, 
And they just got it right the first time. Do you know when you, that doesn't happen all the time with studios. You know, like I've, I've built a lot of studios, different ones to win them and reconfigured studios and all that type of thing. And it just doesn't always work that way. It doesn't work so well the first time. You kind of think, oh, was that it? Wow, that just worked yeah. beautifully. Now it is different with your smart speakers and, the, and kind of the DSB controlled speakers. That's just like black magic now these days, you know, because it just, the speakers kind of configure themselves to the room. But um, that tech wasn't around back in those days. I mean, that was, that was put there in 1995, apparently. So Genelec was young enough at the time. I mean, Jenny's, Jenny has been around for about 40, 45 years now, hasn't it? Genelec. I think it's about 45 years old, mm-hmm. Genelec. Yes. So this is 1995 to now. So, you know, and, you know, so when you think about it, that, that was quite a while ago and they're still there and they still sound amazing. Astonishing. They're, the depth, the clarity, the imaging, it just, it just works. And anyone who goes into Studio One control room, just, they always comment on that sound. And I mean, we push it like we do push it. Danny from the script was in there a while ago. He really pushes it. (laughs) (laughs) The red light blinking on the left one. Danny, if you're listening, (laughs) there was a red light blinking for a while after you left it. But, um, yeah, great sounding. Um, so that's the main monitors and we have 8040s. I I have such a long relationship with Genelec. I mean, I I kind of forget some of the the model numbers. I think there were 8040As actually, because um, I think my first experience with Genelec was in actually Windmill Studio 2, which was just off Stevens Green. Great artists had recorded there. The police had recorded there. Def Leppard had recorded part of Hysteria there. Cranberries recorded a ton of stuff there, as well as in... Studio One in, in, in Windmill, but you know, sounds like dreams and zombie and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think the speakers at the time were 80, 30, the near fields, they were 80, 30s. I think they were the ones before the 80, 40s. Anyway, um, I remember hearing them going, Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's new to me because I'd been using. I'd been using passive speakers before, you know, with amps, except for the, I had a pair of, um, oh, I'll think of them again. ATCs, ATC 100 A's, Farfields in, in, in Cam, what was, what is now Camden Studio. Um, Jenny's weren't as ubiquitous in Ireland or, or, or probably anywhere at that stage. And I had also had like, passive ns10s that i matched i never was a huge fan of them to be honest but other engineers we felt that we had to get them and which is a silly thing isn't it we felt we had to get them because we'd expect that other engineers would use it and i always matched the, uh, them with a way overpowered amp because i just preferred the sound of it but i kept on blowing up the damn things as well so <laughs> like i mean it's really unsatisfactory you know yeah whereas jenny really leaded led the way led the leaded jenny really led jenny like led the way with kind of the whole active paradigm, didn't they? Like the active speaker, uh, where, you know, it was all matched for you. You just had to plunk the speaker up there and the amp was perfectly matched to the speaker. And I thought, well, geez, that makes sense. And it just sounded great. And I, I was kind of hooked back then from Studio 2 called Keystone Studio at the time of Stevens Green. I kind of thought, no, this is kind of, these are good for at the time, it was kind of pop and rock. Yeah. I was doing a lot of, I thought, man, these just are good. They were kind of pokey enough, but they gave you that detail that you needed, you know? Yes. And um, so I, I kind of had them first. And then I think ever since, Alice, I mean, it, I don't mean to sound, you know, like that I'm fawning or anything like that for Genelec, <laughs> but like Wimmel is a big building with loads of different studios and pods, which are kind of small production studios. And they're all Jenny. Like, they're just all Jenny. We, we look like a Jenny showroom. Um, and, it's like, the team really liked them as well. And I know it's, part of it is what you're used to, but as kind of new generations of Genelecs come along, they seem to have thought of the next stage. Do you know, like, they... Yeah. 
they just seem to be the right thing for all the, for the style of music that's coming out right now. Like the detail that we listen to now, particularly when we're using plugins like Split EQ and Spiff and all of these things that um, can now separate the transients from the tone and you can process the transients and the tone separately. You know that fast sound that you hear with the transient and analyzing those transients really well and getting that really full modern sound with that detail and the fact that dynamics are coming back into music. Mm. Like, it just seems to be that I find that the Jennies kind of can be um, all things really, you know, you can do an orchestra on them and if you turn down the music, the dynamics still are retained, but they're just quieter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the dynamics are retained beautifully. Um, and yet if you do really modern, like urban or rock or, you know, like any style, modern styles that are reinforced with, the kick drums are reinforced with samples and you get that uber bass thing going on and you're getting that uber limiting and compression uh, almost as an effect on individual things. It seems to be comfortable within all of those different paradigms. I don't know. It's, it's weird, but it's true. And uh, like when we have speakers from 1995 doing everything from beautiful jazz to traditional Irish music to full orchestras to out and out rock, and they seem to be doing the job for all of those engineers and producers where they're all nodding along going, this sounds great. You know, kind of, it's kind of comforting as a studio owner, as well as just a, someone who, who makes music, Do you know. Yeah. It's nice to have that kind of, there's a reassurance, reassuringly expensive, not <laughs> incredibly expensive, but you know what I mean. Like you, it, it is a brand as well, you know, and it's a, it's, it's a serious brand. So I think people have the confidence when they walk into the studio, when yeah. they see Genelix, and then when they hear it, they know it, you know. Yeah, so we, in, in Studio One, we have the 1039As. In Studio Two, we have the 1237As. And we've coupled that with the 737OA, uh, the Smart Active Subwoofer. And that is, uh, that's something to behold because we have the GLM kit. And um, like I said, we've been moving around the SSL a bit when Spike left, put the SSL back in, rewired the whole place with new racks and I know you can imagine how much fun that was with the old analog desks and, and all that sheer weight of wiring and mm -hmm. soldering. But um, when we did all of that, we put the SSL on casters, um, these kind of little wheeled uh, trolleys underneath it, so that we could move it around easily to find the optimum position, aesthetically for, for just movement within the studio, but also sonically, you know, because where the desk sits in the room, has a huge influence on the sound, certainly a desk with that mass and size. So we've been fiddling around, which is my technical term for it. Very technical. Um, and we've been using the GML setup a lot. Um, you know, you've got a, a test microphone, you've got that little kit um, that you plug into the computer with, um, with the Ethernet uh, connector to the speakers and and. You know, it, it, for your listeners, if you haven't tried it out or seen it, you should see it in action. It's brilliant. And it just does these sweeps and, and does what it needs to do uh, to analyze the room. And you, you reposition the microphone in different places. So we've been doing a lot of that over the last week. Uh, well, last week, today's, today's Tuesday, but yesterday and then prior to that as well, experimenting. And um, it's, it really is amazing. Um, I found with those 1237As down at the bottom end, the bottom end, the base end is bone dry. I love that. Like it's just got that tightness. And um, again, by bumping the crossover frequency up to 100 hertz made a big difference because it does take the pressure off the full range speakers, the 1237As. And that sub bass is taking a lot of the heavy lifting, because there's a lot of action between 80 and 100 hertz. You know, there's a lot of thump down there. Mm. And the subwoofer is taking that action. But how it just, the crossover is seamless. Uh, because 
Well, I know that they're both, why wouldn't they be? Because they're both Jenny speakers. But whichever way the GLM, GLM kit does it, 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 it's really smooth around there. It's extraordinary. And we had an issue with an 80 hertz dip prior uh, to that. And it seems to just be, it's just knocked it on the head. It's just brilliant. And, you know, I walk around the room because with big far fields, it's not just about the sound engineer. I don't believe that you also have near fields for the, the sound engineer at the desk, but your clients and the people that they're bringing in, when you're putting it up on the big speakers, it's as much, you know, they need to hear it well. They yeah. need to be impressed. So the, the balance around the room and the coverage around the room is quite extraordinary. And, you know, they put a sine wave through each speaker and they balance it that way and see it as two separate units as well so that they can optimize that stereo image. Man, the stereo image is good. So that's another thing about the new, the new generation of, of Jennies are brilliant at that, you know. I can't imagine myself ever going back to anything that doesn't have like a smart kit to, to just G, you know, GLM the thing, you know, just yeah. hit a button and let it do the work. It's extraordinary. So we have that in Studio 2. In Studio 3, we have the 1037Cs. They're active monitors. They're three ways. And uh, we have the 7071 um, active sub subwoofer. And that, that just sounds really gorgeous. It's um, They've been there for quite a while. And I learned from Spike, seeing Spike's tent in action, um, this wonderful mixing engineer. And f- for you listeners, you, you should check out his... Um, his IMDb page is just his client list is, I mean, I don't know if anyone actually has a client list quite like it. Really? Anyone, you know, like you know, we're talking like, you know, the great mixers like Bob Clearmountain and all that. And Spike's list is every bit as big and, and God, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. He's a wonderful um, mixing engineer and person. And he's, he's very dedicated, obviously really knows what he's doing and i noticed how tight he had his sound and close-up speakers and i thought wow that's really cool what he's doing so in studio three we tried that and we brought the speakers quite close and those speakers don't have that kind of like in your face kind of sound that Mm -hmm. some speakers do although jenny can do that It, it was known to to bark at you sometimes in the middle but these ones don't and it's it's it sounds incredible. So I've never been happier. Like the three studios, um, and that's, it's hard to get three studios sounding right. You're lucky enough to get one sounding right, but we have been dead lucky. Uh, but it's taken a lot of trial and error, and it's taken a lot of science. And um, I have to I have to give a plug to Michael Brown and his team in Big Bear in Dublin. Their studio suppliers, and Michael and myself go back about a hundred, maybe a hundred and. 15 years it seems <laughs> he was you know when I was starting off in the industry um Big Bear had just established themselves as a really good supplier and you know for anyone who is thinking of setting up a studio and all that you need someone like this you need to find out who in your city is the Michael Brown who is someone who can advise you and you know like we sat down ages ago and you know it, he always treated me the same when, when, when I was kind of like a bit of a disruptor in the industry, myself and the team, and we had a small studio, but we we're getting a lot of attention, doing a lot of work and we built and we built and we built with the studio and the college. And at every step of the way, Michael was kind of one of these guys who would advise you, would laugh with you, mm-hmm. was, was a someone to bounce ideas off. What do you think I should do with this and whatever? And I remember him, and it just so happens that Michael also was the Genelec, um agent in Ireland. And I remember him telling me a bit about Jenny's uh, back in the day as well. And then I said, yeah, I was in Keystone, I had listened to Jenny's, and he was going, yeah, they're amazing. And he did also tell me a bit about, you know, that kind of kind of homespun vibe that they have, I suppose. You know, they're they're out in Isalmi, I think, is this is the is the town on a lake and they seem to like, they employ loads of local people and they take real, pr- real pride in what they do. And it's almost like you kind of imagine a guitar manufacturer to be like, or, you know, people who make pianos and instruments and guitars. It just, you know, it doesn't sound like a factory. It sounds like a, a labor of love, you know? 
And these guys seem to have that thing going on. And Michael was saying, like, look, these guys, if you do invest in them in your studios, because I was, of course, looking at all the options. If you do look at these um, as an option in the studios, I can guarantee you that you won't regret it. It'll sound amazing, but you'll also get the support. And it won't be just the support from me, but it'll be, the, you know, it'll be the Jenny, the Genelec people themselves as well. They're a really good bunch to work with. And he was right. Um, Darren and Big Bear came down and helped us with the initial setups of the of those speakers and all that. And it's just been, it's been one of those things that there's a lot to worry about in studios. If you run a studio these days, big commercial studio, there's very few of us left. You know, there's Abbey Road and there's you know, some of the bigger ones in London and around the place. But it's, um, you know, you need to be complementing it with something. And obviously education is a big one for us. But there's a lot going on in a studio. And to get your monitoring right, it's just, it's a, it's a real relief. And it's, it's something else that it's something big that you don't have to worry about, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also, as well as the pleasure of then when you're sitting down to work and you're recording a drum kit and you're getting all those components of the drum kit into phase, for example, you know, you're hitting the polarity switch on the, on the SSL and you're hearing that thump come through between your two kick mics, you know, and you're just going, yeah, man, God, I'm loving this. So as, you know, as a, as a producer and as a, a music fan, uh, you know, you get that satisfaction of having great speakers, but also as a studio owner, you get the reliability and and knowledge that it, you know, it works um, for the client as well. That's very important. Very, very important. What about um, if you're allowed to say what's next for the studio? Have you got anything exciting coming up that you're allowed to speak about? Of course, don't get yourself into trouble. There's always. Um, I'll have to. I'll have to think about that one now. Um, Thursday, or Friday, we had um, David Holmes in doing um the wonderful david holmes um and you know he's a he he was a dj but he's a wonderful music producer he did all the music for oceans 11 and you know yeah. um songs like i heard wonders and all that you know he's wonderful and he had um some of the primal scream guys in and they're working on some uh they had a, a string section in a 12-piece string section that they doubled up and it sounded amazing. And I mean, there's some link there. I won't be going too much into it, but, but you know, Sinead O'Connor, God yeah. rest her. And um, and some new two stuff there as well. So um, David will be back and um, he works with a wonderful arranger called Brian Irvine from Northern Ireland. And, um, you know, it's, I can't have, you can probably see me on, on, on Zoom here, but I, I can't help smiling at these things, you know, because no, that's good. It's, just joyful. it's just joyful to, to hear, just to hear really good players. I, I always love the orchestral thing. And particularly if you can marry it with music that I particularly like, which is, you know, more contemporary, I suppose. But, you know, when you hear an orchestra, when you're miking up an orchestra and working with an orchestra and these people come in, they don't know each other necessarily and they just got dots on their pages and then they start playing and it all just comes together and it sounds amazing, you know. It's mm, magic. Like, what's not to love about that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, David has been in before and he, uh, before that, and he, so, you know, he, um, apparently they'll be coming back in again soon. So I, it's that kind of stuff which is fab, you know, just to listen to that. And I mean, th for, for those who who don't know of Wynne Mullane, um, check out our website. I mean, there's a list of clients there and people often ask me like, so, you know, and, and who's recorded there? And I'm terrible. I you, Like you'd think that I would be able to list off <laughs> some of the artists, but I, I literally can't, be, I, you know, like... There's so many of them and I've, I've got the, in, the internet in front of me and, um, I have to look up the, the list of, of clients myself because that there are so many. And, um, you know, like, what's wonderful is that you can get a call, um, on a, on a Tuesday to say, um, listen, this is so and so, um, We'll, we'll be in Dublin on Thursday. Is there any chance that we could come in and record? And sometimes we get some of the biggest acts you could possibly imagine. Mm. Uh, like huge names coming in. And like I'm looking at the, I called up the, the list of clients on the website. 
At the top, we've got you 2 Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Bruce Springsteen, Van Morrison, Elvis Costello, Ed Sheeran, Hosier, who I just adore. I think he's such a wonderful yes, sorry, artist, you know. Oh, unbelievable. Ellie Golding, the script, Metallica, Lady Gaga, Louis Capaldi, R.E.M., Gavin James, Niall Rogers, and Stuart Copeland, who's, uh, who's been in quite a bit recently and will be coming back quite soon. The wonderful uh, drummer from, um, from the police, who's a, you know, a very established, uh, composer in his own right. And it just goes on. Depeche Mode, Brian Eno, Rod Stewart, Kate Bush, you know, the Hounds of Love mm-hmm. running yeah, up yeah. the hill and all that stuff. New Order. And I mean, Nora Jones, Snow Patrol, ACDC, Dave Grohl, Spice Girls, Gary Barlow. I mean, the list just goes on and on and it's still going on. And, um, you know, these artists are, you know, that to have so many beautifully talented, pe- talented people performing and um, expressing themselves, doing what they do in those in those studios is just extraordinary. It, it really is, and. You can be humbled by it sometimes, you know, not sometimes, all the time. You can just think, oh, my God, as a music fan, you said it earlier about maybe pinching yourself. And you kind of do sometimes have to pinch yourself. And and at the same time, you, you kind of, you can't just be a fan. You have to provide a service to these people. And they're demanding, not as people, not a, not in a, in a negative way. But their standards are so high, the bar is so high that you have to have the confidence in yourself and the team and the equipment, including, of course, I mentioned about the monitors, that you can deliver that and that you, you're, you're, you've earned the right, I suppose, to be in that position, mm. to be offering a service to artists like this. And, you know, I'm just looking at Sinead O'Connor here, a picture of Sinead, who... I had the privilege of meeting a number of times in my life. And the first time I met her when I had a small, that small MIDI studio in a school of music, um, she had just exploded around the world with nothing compares to you. And she had the shaved head mm-hmm. and she was this quiet person who I was introduced to and I was spellbound when I met her. I couldn't believe it. It was just, I mean, she was such a famous person at the time and I was quite young and impressionable. But she was the first true superstar I met. And I was bowled over by her modesty and her, her, yeah, I suppose just her modesty mm. and her, her, she was demure. She was quiet and she was her humility, I suppose. And, but also her warmth and her, her smile. My God, her smile. You know, and I'm just, I'm looking at her now. And of course we had um, the wonderful Dolores um, from the Cranberries as well, who, who who died a while ago. Another wonderful Irish talent um, who we've lost, you know, these these people who were great. And, you know, I, I'm going to do a plug for Ireland here as well. You know, we've yeah. Hosier as well. And we've got these incredible artists from a small, from a small country, you know. But when you look at you two and Sinead and Dolores and all of those wonderful artists and Hosier, my God, you know, we, I, I just, I do smile and I think that, wow, you know, we are punching above our weight. I think when Malena always punched above its weight as a, an international studio, you know, from humble Dublin, you'd expect it in Los Angeles and New York and London and Berlin with the wonderful Hansa studios and, you know, but Dublin, wasn't you know a player i suppose on that international scene but it became a player through windmill lane and through the hard work and expertise of people like brian masterson and james morris and and to be able to carry that mantle forward with naomi and aiden my partners it's wonderful it's just a you know it really is a it's a privilege and it's a it's exciting and it's fun and it's everything you'd imagine it to be a bit of a hair hair raising helter skelter ride as well but it's just 
It's wonderful, you know. So I, when I look at that list of, because I don't go dwelling on our website all the time, I just happen to pull it up now so I could remember some names, but it does strike me sometimes about that, you know. And again, I can't stop smiling. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's only when you step Being back so sometimes lucky. and you can appreciate what you've done or things that have been achieved. Um, but it's so nice to hear that you're still having those pinch me moments um, all this time later with these phenomenal artists here in this incredible studio. So thank you so much for your time today, sharing your stories. I think I could talk to you all day or we could have our, just our own podcast series where you could just talk me through a project at a time. Um, but uh, you've probably got, um, you know, some work to do, some calibration to do, <laughs> sorting the general X out. So I will probably release you now. But thank you so much for Wonderful. your time, Tony. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. You're very welcome, Ellie. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheerio. And I'd love to catch up with you again sometime, perhaps when you've got your next project to talk about. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. All right. Wonderful. Thanks, Alice. All right. Thank you so much. Cheerio. Bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.